Hello and welcome back to the Let's Talk Palestine podcast. We're glad to have you back here today on what is a very important episode on an issue where there is a lot of confusion about at the moment. There's a lot of misinformation as well. And so we want to calmly go through the very basics. Um, as you can tell from the title, we'll be speaking about Hamas, the, the political party in, in, in Palestine. Namely, the basics, its ideology, some of the recent allegations against it, and its popularity, or or better said, how it's perceived by the Palestinian population. Hopefully, by the end, you'll be better equipped to navigate all the Hamas discourse online. But to help us get through this, I'm pleased to say that we have Fadis again. Hi, all. Andy. Hello. Before we do start, though, I should quickly mention um, to any Israeli spies listening that um, any of the opinions that we say in this episode do not necessarily reflect everyone at Let's Talk Palestine. And we are not in any way affiliated with Hamas. Let me make that very, very clear. Let me repeat again. We are not in any way affiliated with Hamas. Oh, really? I, I thought all Palestinians were Hamas, actually. That's how a lot of the discourse is, is seeming to be online at the moment. And so um, maybe you should listen to this upcoming podcast, uh, Ferdis. <laughs> um, but actually, on that note, let me ask you directly again. Um, let's let's go through these basics of Hamas. So right from the beginning, when who, who are Hamas? When did they begin? Who are they? Uh, where were they based? And, and yeah, let's set the scene. I think that's a really good question. Um... Hamas, if you want to understand it, we need to kind of go back to 1987. In 1987, the first Intifada broke out. And for those who don't know, the, an Intifada is basically a mass Palestinian uprising, a, a prolonged one as well. It doesn't just happen for one day, two days. No, it happens for years. And the first Intifada lasted from 1987 to 1991, thereabouts. And so in 1987, if you go once to Gaza, you'd find that there was this small group of Palestinians who were an offshoot or a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is an Egypt-based uh, political party that had Islamist views. Um, and they had an offshoot in Gaza, but it wasn't political. All it really did was provide social services, provide charity, provide aid, food, health care, uh, volunteering for people. And because of that, they developed really close relationships with the community and their popularity began to increase. And so when in 1987, the first Intifada broke out, there was just this sense among Palestinians that this was a moment when everyone had to step in to rise up, to speak out, to protest, to resist the occupation, that it was time to, to end it, to finally take action. And so this group of volunteers in Gaza said, you know what, we can't just do charity. We need to also join this movement for national liber liberation. We need to be political or more, more political. And so they disaffiliated from the Muslim Brotherhood and they founded a political party called Hamas. And Hamas said that our goals is to liberate Palestine. We will do it through armed resistance. We will defend our people who are being attacked by the Israelis right now. And we do believe ultimately in a vision for Palestinian society to be more religious and to be more Islamist and more based on religion. And so how how would you say, well, well, you've made it very clear at the beginning, it was a very small group. 
but then over time and if we fast forward up to today it is one of the biggest political factions in palestine how was that possible how did it rise before we move on i actually wanted to make the statement that the rise of islamic fundamentalism was in response to the growing israeli religious extremism so it didn't just surface out of thin air there was it was in response to the extremism on the other side but if you want to go on with what you were saying no, no, I think, I think that's a really, really good point, Dee. And uh, I'd also say, actually, so Alejandro, regarding your question of, well, where, how did Hamas go from just a group of volunteers to where they are today? It's the most powerful resistance group and having dealt the biggest military blow to Israel that anyone ever has, in fact. Uh, it, you know, not uh, I won't get into too many details, but what's something that shocks a lot of people is that at the start, Israel actually provided some level of support to Hamas. And it wasn't because Israel agreed with them or liked them, but it was because it figured that the Palestinian movement, given that it was largely secular at the time, the introduction of a, of a religious group could drive a wedge and could start dividing Palestinians. It could weaken these secular parties that Israel thought was a much bigger uh, rival to it and much stronger at being able to lead a national liberation movement. And to fast forward, Hamas starts slowly growing popularity as Fatah, the ruling secular Palestinian party, starts losing popularity, starts failing, negotiates very unpopular deals that gives away basically most Palestinian land, in fact. And you fast forward to 2006, and Hamas is running in the Palestinian elections at the time for the Palestinian Authority, which is the body that administers parts of Gaza and the West Bank, and Hamas wins. Hamas is elected by, with a plurality, I think around 45% of the uh, of voters. And from that moment until the next year, uh, Hamas and Fatah fail to manage to, to, to come to a deal on a new government. And so with the backing of Israel, the United States and the European Union, who all favored Fatah because Fatah had disavowed armed resistance and had agreed to all of these deals that were very favorable to Israel, right, giving away all this Palestinian land. But Hamas, on the other hand, wasn't. It rejected these deals. It said, we need, we we're not going to accept these deals. Because of all this, they all backed Fatah. And so there was a split. Fatah took over the West Bank. Hamas took over the Gaza. And I think I should provide some context. Gaza, two years earlier, without delving too much into this, the Israelis had decided they don't want Gaza because it was too small, but had such a large population that to them, absorbing so many Palestinians would endanger the Jewish majority that Israel had. And so they left it and they immediately blockaded it. So they constructed this wall. They stationed snipers all around Gaza to shoot anyone who approached it. Uh, and so this was a siege. They still retained control of the airspace, of the waters, of the electricity, of all that. Two years later, Hamas comes to power to administer the Gaza Strip, and the blockade only intensifies. And just over that period, all that has happened is Hamas has just constantly refused to abandon the struggle, has constantly demanded to, to lift the siege on Gaza. And over that period, it has just grown in power. So essentially what you've kind of just said is that Israel was actually successful in trying to drive the wedge between uh, Hamas and Fatah 
Um, they were very successful. In fact, as you said, there, there was civil disarray basically for a year when when they were fighting each other instead of fighting the occupying power. Um, and actually, I have a little quote here because um, even up until 2019, Netanyahu said uh, to his cabinet, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. And then he goes on to say, this is part of our strategy. So 2019, four years ago, 2019, I actually saw this today. Um, and it's from a from a um, article in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. Um so there you can see kind of the the way in which Israel has tried to play this kind of divide and conquer strategy. And it's played it at every level in not only in the way uh, between Hamas and Fatah, but also just giving every different group of Palestinians, whether it's Palestinian citizens of Israel, whether it's Palestinians in the West Bank or Palestine, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. We've all lived very different lives and, and Palestinians in the diaspora, for example, us. Um, we've all lived very different lives and so we cannot connect we cannot sort of uh, work together because we all have our own issues to kind of rise up and and fight against the the ultimate root problem but let's let's come back to to Hamas here and um, let's kind of put some some facts on the table because people will have heard like uh, lots of different things about Hamas and we just need to kind of set the record straight so yes it is an Islamist group Yes, it has been designated as a terrorist group by the international community, but let's be clear, the international community, whenever we mention it, is the white countries of the West. Um, designated Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. So let's just... Exactly. Exactly. And, and here again, uh, like one little, um, one small little similarity. Uh, now that you mentioned Nelson Man Mandela, he was part of the ANC, but he was also part of the, the MK, which was the military wing of that um, political party. And similar to, similar with Hamas, Hamas is primarily a political party, but it has a military wing. Uh, and in some cases, the military wing is the only part that is is confirmed as sort of a terrorist group. But in to, to some countries, for example, the US, the entire thing is considered a terrorist group. Can I jump in really quick? So um, Hamas is not limited to its military wing, though. It does have other functions, like it has a charitable function. It has, you know, security services. I think it even has a media function. So, you know, it has these other administrative functions. And that's why some of these countries don't actually designate Hamas as a terrorist organization as a whole, just the military wing. And on that note, I need everyone to understand when we use the word military, um, I use that word loosely because it's not actually a military with you know, they don't have an advanced military. It's literally, okay, how about this? They don't have no tanks, no fighter jets, no heavy artillery. All they have is makeshift bombs and guns. Um, oh, and we could add paraglid paragliders in there apparently to, to their arsenal now. So they have nothing that equates to the might that Israel has in terms of military. They are essentially not a military in that regard. Exactly. I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, it's not just that this is a struggle between a stateless refugee people and an occupying state, because this isn't actually any occupying state, uh, even in terms of occupiers, Israel is quite exceptional. Israel is one of only eight militaries in the world that possesses nuclear powers, uh, nuclear weapons. Israel is constantly ranked as the most powerful military in the Middle East and one of the most powerful in the world that has weapon technology that even the US and Europe don't have and thus have to import from Israel. 
And, and so that's the level we're talking about. And I think D really, you know, hit the nail on the head when you're talking about, you know, Hamas and why it's so, you know, it's so absolutely reductive when people talk Hamas, say that Hamas is a terrorist group because Hamas is so much more even than just armed resistance. It has a military wing and then it has a political bureau that drafts laws, that drafts legislation, that drafts policies, uh, that has uh, that has committees. And then it has also a government arm, the government that actually manages day-to-day -day affairs within Gaza. It's not a sovereign government because Israel uh, still controls the electricity grid, it controls the telecommunications, the fence, the seas, the airspace. Um, but it manages taxes, it collects taxes, it provides public services, it funds hospitals, it funds schools. Hamas in many ways acts like a government. It is a government. And as governments do, they have a form of military, even if it is very, very limited. And even if saying military doesn't really convey what it actually is uh, and its possessions or capabilities. And importantly, with what you like, with what you both just said, that it kind of... Uh... Well, in that it works as a government, but it also provides services in a refuge in a in a population which has over eighty percent being refugees and and unemployment to I think over fifty percent. People are therefore dependent on these social services. People have been driven into the ground not because of Hamas, but because of Israel, because Israel is the occupying power through this blockade. At the end of the something that I hear very often is that. They're, that they people shouldn't support Hamas because they are a repressive group and and uh, repress the Palestinian population. But we need to remember that really the the big dog in this, so to say, is the occupation and is the Israeli military, is the Israeli blockade, is the Israeli political system, is simply Israel. Exactly, and I think you know I I do want to uh, say that unfortunately because of how much Hamas is demonized and when people demonize Hamas, they're not just demonizing Hamas, they're demonizing. Many other Palestinians in general are demonizing any Palestinian who chooses to defend himself, to defend his family, to defend his land from a foreign army that is coming to invade it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us, uh, we just, it's hard to resist becoming, you know, like Hamas's spokesperson, which is why I do want to iterate that Hamas is just like any other political party or governing body in any country. Not all people under it support it. And I'm not saying this, you know, to say that therefore Palestinians hate Hamas. No, I'm just saying that when people talk about Palestinians' attitudes towards this political party, they need to understand it as any country's population's relationship to one of their political parties, to one of their governed bodies. Nobody likes all of, you know, I have many criticisms of Hamas. Many people in Gaza do as well. But it doesn't mean that it's okay to demonize, to call for the destruction of the body that provides vital social services, that provides hospital funding, that provides schooling to an entire society. Calling for the destruction of Hamas is essentially calling for the destruction of the foundations of life in Gaza, especially considering because if you destroy Hamas, who's going to take over? Israel? And what is Israel going to do? It's going to treat Gaza exactly the way it treats West Bank. 
it's going to go through, its settlers are going to go through rampages, killing Palestinian children. Israel's going to kidnap mothers and fathers in the middle of the night when they raid their homes and, you know, line up an entire families in their living room. Uh, so that's what I think people need to understand. Hamas is so much more than just someone who fights Israel and defends its people. I also, because you mentioned, I like, I, I think it's really important also for for this point to be made because you mentioned that not everybody supports Hamas, especially on a on a social level. I mean, Palestine contains, or I mean, it used to have a much bigger Christian population. A very long time ago, it had a Jewish population. But for me personally, as a as a as a Palestinian Christian, or my family is Christian. There is no way in which in a free Palestine, I would want to be living sort of in a strictly um, strictly Islamic society. But the difference with the points that we're trying to make now is the fact that and it ties into the fact that Hamas is so popular or, or is popular now. And it's because it's the only political group that is willing to undertake some form of resistance against the Israeli government. We've mentioned before about Fatah and how it lost a lot of uh, a lot of influence in Palestinian society because it is basically it, it's happy to to be subjugated by Israel, whereas Hamas says, no, we're going to resist. And that's the difference. That's a really good point. A lot of people think it's a lot of media and propaganda and conditioning has made it very difficult for people to see Palestinians as an Arab people or as a predominantly Muslim people, though with a very substantial Christian minority. It's made it very hard for a lot of people to view us as rational human beings who are ultimately going to make decisions based on reason. The mm -hmm. truth of the matter is that I have many, 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 many criticisms of Hamas, and yet there is not a single other Palestinian political party that has any form of strategic thinking that has managed to at all succeed to improve the situation. And so that is what people need to understand when they ask, well, why do people support Hamas? Because the truth of the matter is that they're the only ones who've shown they can actually achieve change and they have achieved change. The, the, because Israel now understands that it cannot punish Gaza without, you know, being hit back, without Gaza defending itself. There are a lot of things that Israel has been deterred from doing, even not just in Gaza, but even in Jerusalem. Because now, when Israel knows that if it attacks holy sites in Jerusalem, if it tries to wipe out neighborhoods in Jerusalem and expel its residents, it understands that now there's going to be a response from all Palestinians, whether they're in Jerusalem, the West Bank, or in Gaza through Hamas. And nobody else has been able to, you know, put that much pressure on Israel to to, to mitigate its oppressive policies. Uh, now, actually, uh, Alejandro, um, I did want to ask you, you know, we were saying that we wanted to talk about, well, what does Hamas actually believe uh, in terms of its position? And I, I do think it's kind of concise, so I'll, I'll just go, I'll say my, what I know very quickly, is that Hamas today, uh, it, its aims to establish an independent Palestinian state on, 1960, on uh, the 1967 borders. So in other words, if people are a bit confused by what that means, that means a two-state solution. So Palestine in West Bank and Gaza, and there would be Israel in the rest of Palestinian lands. And that is 
Hamas's position. It sometimes says that it's a temporary position from which it hopes to continue pressuring Israel to establish, to allow refugees to return to all of Palestine and to achieve a greater degree of liberation. Uh, but a lot of analysts are conflicted on that, and some speculate that Hamas just says that to not upset Palestinians too much, that it's settling for less with just these limited borders. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good point, because, I mean, to, to the majority of Palestinians, which are refugees, which, I mean, I, they make up the majority of the entire Palestinian population, Um and for example, members of the diaspora, such as myself, I mean, my family specifically originates from Nazareth. Um, and if we were to to take a look at a, a resolution, a, a final sort of um, ending of the so-called Palestinian-Israeli issue, <laughs> if we were to have two states, as, as you mentioned, on, on the 1967 borders, then where does that leave people like me, for example? Because Nazareth is currently a city in, in the state of Israel. It would remain a city in the state of Israel. How is that fair to me? I would then basically be a, a foreigner in what had been my country or the country of my great-grandparents and ancestors going back hundreds of years. I would be a foreigner in this country, and I would I would have issues in, in basically every every part of society because Israel is by definition, attempting to become a Jewish ethnostate. And I would be a contradiction to that. I would be an issue for them. But can I can I just finish off the point? Because for me, it's like I I live a comfortable life here in 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 Europe. And so you don't need to worry about me in this case, but you should worry about the millions of Palestinian refugees who still, still to this day, since 1948, since 1967, are living in refugee camps in Syria, and Syria itself has been decimated by the civil war, and the Palestinians have basically been held there because they can't go anywhere else. They're already struggling as it is. In Lebanon, in Jordan, each country has had different sorts of conditions for their Palestinian refugees. However, for none of them is life comfortable. And for that reason, you need to bear in mind, or, or you need to keep them in mind uh, when, when you think of a, a, a solution, a, a two-state solution. But on that note, um, I also, I mean, one of the other things that I wanted to mention, just adding a bit onto, onto what you said previously, is is just simply the fact, one of the reasons why Hamas is also so popular and or, or so powerful within Palestinian society is because at the end of the day, Palestinians have been betrayed by everyone. In the absence of international law by the international community, through Israeli exceptional, exceptionalism and Palestinians have just been completely betrayed and Palestinians cannot rely on the sanctimonious, morally superior people in the West who say, oh, you you can't resist like that. Like, we have no idea. I'm speaking on, on the West's behalf now. We have no idea how you, how you actually live, but we're telling you that you can't do that. And so it makes complete sense when you look at it through that lens, why Palestinians, especially those in Gaza who have suffered incomprehensively for the last 15 16 years that they would support a group that says no i'm not standing for this anymore i don't care how i'm returning to my home whether whether it's now or in five years time i'm supporting the only force that wants me to go back home because none of the other forces appear to want me to go back home exactly we talked about this last episode that 
Palestinians have been left with very, very little options. Mm -hmm. uh, so I actually do want to bring this into the context of exactly what's been happening in the last few days. A lot of people are asking, well, what does Hamas want? Does it want to kill all Israelis and other, you know, all of these points that are largely fueled by a lot of misinformation that's out there. And so I, I do want to comment on that quickly. Why did Hamas do what it did? What we know that its goals are to end the occupation. Of course, Gaza knew that not a, no single uh, operation could free Palestine. So what are its actual goals? Was this just an eruption of fury? Was it just angry? Was it just revenge? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, you need to put this in context of the fact that not only has there have there been has there been a 16 year long siege on Gaza that to be honest to, to, to our listeners, I don't think there can anything can ever convey what it is like to live in Gaza because the truth is there isn't any place on earth that is like that. There is no other place on earth where there are drones over your skies 24 seven to survey you. 24-7 for 16 years. No place on earth goes through that. No place on earth, nobody on earth is trapped within a, a territory that is smaller than Detroit, that is a third of the size of Paris. And most of these people have never stepped out of this piece of land in their entire lives. These people, out of four directions that they look in, you know, if they were on top of a balcony, three of the four directions they look in, they will only see a massive concrete wall. They will not be able to see the rest of the horizon. And the other, the fourth side is the sea. But if they venture too far into the sea, even if it's just to fish, as you know, if you're a fisherman, you get shot by the Israeli Navy. So siege doesn't even begin to convey it. And so it's in the backdrop of this siege. But more importantly, I'd say, it's in the backdrop that Hamas has been trying very, very hard for the last few years to reach a long-term truce with Israel, temporary truce with Israel, where, okay, we understand we're not going to be able to liberate all of Palestine, but in exchange for a truce and no exchange of fire and rocket fire, lift the siege on Gaza. And let us rebuild this country. They said, we want to build a seaport so that we can import and export. We want to rebuild our airport that Israel bombed and obliterated in 2001. Yes, Gaza used to have an airport. I know, it's shocking. Um, and Hamas constantly offered Israel these deals, even in 2018, delivering a letter personally written by Hamas members in Hebrew to Benjamin Netanyahu to try and reach this deal and put this, you know, and, and improve the lives of thousands. And Israel has said no. And the truth of the matter is that obviously Israel is going to say no, say no, because there is no reason for it not to. Based on Israel's interests, there wasn't enough pressure. Why would Israel let 2 million people have normal lives when it can instead ignore them and just contain them within this cage where it can convince itself that it doesn't have to worry about them? Right, because even when Hamas fires rockets once every few years, 99% of them get blocked by the Iron Dome system that shoots them all down. And that 1% of rockets that remains usually just hits some empty field or, or some parking lot. Uh, and Israel's happy to live with that. Israel's accepted that equation. So why would it fundamentally transform the status quo? It wasn't in its favor. And so Hamas has simply realized it has no choice but to show Israel 
that it needs to change. And because Palestinians in Gaza aren't going to stay cooped up in forever. The situation is getting gets worse and worse as overpopulation in this small territory builds, as people still don't have access to clean water, still don't have access to electricity, still don't have access to actual healthcare or actual education. And so Hamas wanted to show Israel that. And that's what this was all about. It was about transforming the status quo. So that's a perfect segue into, you know, addressing these allegations and whatnot about Hamas and, you know, their motives why they chose to take hostages, um, you know, we need to address the power asymmetry, okay? I'm coming from a background of studying international peace and conflict resolution. So we've studied abstract ideas, you know, motives behind certain non-state and state actors. And in this particular case, I'm gonna start it this way. This is obviously my view. and. In regards to the hostages, I don't condone nor do I condemn the act, and I'll explain why. I studied, like I said, international peace and conflict re resolution, and this is how I view it through that lens. Hamas is a non-state actor, correct? And we just described the siege they've been under for far too long. Um, they have zero capabilities of actually influencing the military might of Israel, a powerful state actor that's fully backed by the West. So for the last 15 years, Gaza has been living under this siege that no one can even fathom until they've, they've experienced it. In fact, the UN deemed Gaza uninhabitable by 2020. It's 2023, you guys. Nothing has changed. Israel has not addressed a single grievance. So Gaza has nothing essentially that Israel wants. So if Israel wants to address those grievances, they have to act so in good faith, right? But Israel has already shown it doesn't act in good faith. So how does Hamas leverage power to get Israel to come to the table and change these cruel conditions, you know, that it has imposed on Gaza as a whole, which is a form of collective, collective punishment? So unfortunately, it had to be the hostages, right? So hostages are meant to be a bargaining chip in this larger scheme of things, a negotiating tool to bring Israel, to force Israel to the table and change some things. Because obviously the international community has let down the people of Gaza and Israel's, like I said, doesn't act in good faith. So we have to understand in any hostage situation, forget about even like, you know, international politics. Let's talk about even like a bank situation or whatever. The point being holding hostage, hostages captive, usually there's always an asking, right? They want to swap hostages for, I don't know, something. And in, in the case of Hamas and all that, they usually take hostages and then say, release a thousand Palestinian prisoners and we give you your hostages. It's like I said, a bargaining chip, because again, Gaza slash Hamas has nothing that Israel wants. This is the power asymmetry that's at, at play here. So this is why I, I view it through this lens and I'm like, okay, I don't necessarily condone this, but I get why it was done. This is like a, a guerrilla warfare type tactic. You know, like I said, they don't have a military. They don't have that might to challenge Israel in any way. And is this uh, D based on, I think, because you have background in this, this is very common in an asymmetric relationship, right? Especially when there's, in terms of when we're talking about an occupier or a colonizer, it's very common that the colonized have to resort to tactics just out of necessity, because at the end of the day, they're not going to accept, uh, you know, eternal oppression. And so 
a, this is a temp this is a necessary act and if this is what they have to resolve, a desperate act rather because you said earlier they had written a note to benjamin netanyahu what has changed did they respond to diplomacy no um the cruel conditions are still there um and no one actually asks why no one asks what violent political conditions israel has imposed that helped hamas emerge you know they didn't just appear out of thin air they appeared in response to something exactly like at the end of the day all of resistance like what are they resisting when we say resistance there is something that's being resisted all the violence all the pain, all the suffering, its ultimate root cause is a daily decision that Israeli leaders make to maintain this apartheid regime, to continue colonizing this land. All of this would go away if they end the occupation, if they end apartheid, if they allow 7 million Palestinians who are in exile to return, because then there wouldn't be anything for us to resist anymore. Exactly. And so I think actually I did want to touch on one important thing uh you were saying d in terms of hostages like this whole concept of hostages you'll note that nobody ever refers to the palestinian prisoners who are held in israeli jails as hostages yes exactly what they are if you we need to pay attention to terminology fundamentally speaking what is the difference when we talk about a prisoner or a detainee or a hostage right prisoner really gives off this impression it's it connotes this idea of legitimacy that whoever imprisoned imprisoned you has a right to imprison you right and it has this idea that it is justified and that you must have done something wrong while hostage implies that you are innocent that the person who is uh, holding you who's detaining you has no legitimacy to hold you and this imbalance of terms like sorry i need to say Israel has 5,200, as of, as of one of the monthly statistics that came out this year, Israel was holding 5,200 Palestinians hostage. Hostage. Not prisoners. Hostage. Israel has no jurisdiction whatsoever to hold any of these. And these include hundreds of children. These include people. And I'm sorry, actually, D, I should hand this over to you because I know that you have a personal connection to this. I, exactly. I that, thank God for bringing that up. Um, so I actually have a cousin who has been kidnapped by Israel. It's been an, over a month now, and we don't know about his welfare. We haven't heard about where he is. Um, you know, he... He's been, I don't want to use the word detained because a lot of people will hear detained and think, oh, he was arrested. This is a legitimate thing that Israel is pulling off right now. No, it's illegitimate. They took him to an undisclosed location. We don't know. We can't visit him. We can't talk to him. That's basically holding someone hostage and captive. That's not a due process of like, you know, detaining someone, giving them trial or charge, you know, addressing charges and then giving them legal representation they don't receive any of that and then they're tried in a military court when it comes down to it that's if they're even they go through a trial because sometimes they just you know these palestinians end up starving you know doing hunger strike hunger strike yeah i had two cousins that had to actually go through a hunger 82 day hunger strike they one of them nearly died the other one lost his sight until israel was pressured enough to release them because they had no charges on them to keep them held like that so people have to understand, just because we use the words administrative detention, they are not detained by a 
due process. I, I don't know if that the UK has something like that due process, correct? But you know, American due process is that you you give people a fair, you address that they're they are charged for something and they they're allowed to go through a trial. But that's not the case. Can I just make the the point to to kind of make this all crystal clear for every single listener listening to write this to, to this right now? Everything that we have mentioned now, whether it was Dee mentioning about her, her cousins in administrative detention or Faris speaking about the blockade, these are all provocations. The attacks didn't start two uh, three days ago on Saturday. They didn't start then. They started from the first moment when Palestinian rights were taken away, whether it was slightly before the Nakba, whether it was whenever. It, it was not a few days ago. It was a long time ago. And as you said, all of this, simply the term resistance already describes the essence of what is being done. Palestinians are resisting the occupation, resisting the blockade, resisting exactly and it's you know what the thing is the reason many people have trouble understanding this uh, and i really want the listeners to to listen carefully here is when violence becomes normal right when what when violence becomes pervasive when violence takes the form not of you know bombs and guns but takes the form of keeping two million people hostage and trapped in a territory when that just seems to come off as normal, it becomes more acceptable and it becomes harder to understand that that is a provocation that is made every single second that Palestinians are kept trapped in a ghetto. Gaza is one massive ghetto that people from in Gaza are not from Gaza. 73% of people in Gaza are from surrounding lands that Israel colonized in 1948 and then ethnically cleansed them from. And Gaza was, in essence, has become a ghetto to, in which to concentrate all these Palestinians and trap them and keep them from returning. That's why they built the wall, so that these Palestinians who obviously want to return home don't return. And so when this type of structural violence, right, that's what Israel does. It's all this structural violence that's so much more dangerous than the bullets they fire because it affects 7 million people simultaneously every moment, every day. This structural violence, when it becomes normal, any form of disruptive violence, it just becomes so easy to spin because it is disruptive, right? Hamas's violence is disruptive and it should be and it has to be. How else do you stop oppression? You must disrupt it. And if it is the normal, if it's the norm, then you have to disrupt normalcy. So mm -hmm. this is this wasn't an attack. And I hate using the word attack because that's not at all what the case is. I think that's a great way to end part one, actually. Um, these are just the very basics, I should remind everyone. And of course, we could say so much more. There's entire books written on all of this. But now you will have the background to take on some of the allegations that we will be speaking about in part two. See you in a moment.